0: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 66, another one with Mike McMahon. Welcome to another supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast.
1: I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Today on the show, we get to check in with Star Trek Lower Decks creator and executive producer, Mike McMahon.
0: Yeah, so this is your first and only warning that we will be getting heavily into spoiler territory about Season 2 of Lower Decks. If you haven't caught up with the second season yet stop now go watch and uh while you're at it go listen to mission log live for a weekly discussion that we have been having all season long so here's your spoiler
1: warning red alarm (laughs) red alarm (laughs) and without any further ado let's welcome mike back to the show
0: Hey, first things first, uh, Mike, as you came on, we started talking about merchandise. And I have to know, it's been a year now. Where is my Cube Dog action figure? <laughs> uh, because to me, that is really the missing piece of LDS merch.
2: I mean, for me, it's the Boimler and Boimler variant covered in board babies. That's what I want to see. Um, I'm banging that drum. I think merch takes a minute. I think the more yep. people who watch the show, the more people who ask for it the more people who buy stuff on Star StarTrek.com, the mm-hmm. easier of a case it'll be for me to make to say, hey, I think people like this show. We should we should give them some stuff to get and put on their desks and put on their Christmas trees and put on their bodies. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, everybody at, uh, at, at Viacom and Star Trek is super behind it, but we're also running into, like, it's hard to make stuff and ship stuff right now. So, like, you know, wheels are turning and, and stuff takes a minute, but I think... Uh, Hopefully we'll see some cool stuff by season three.
0: And I do want to mention that uh, this podcast primarily goes out to the largest audience on audio. But for those of you who are on Patreon or otherwise get the video feed of this, um, if you're not catching the video, what you're missing is that Mike has some merch around him right now, including the six foot tall standee of Lieutenant Shax. Mm-hmm. But you've got
1: the Spock helmet on your desk and you've got Puppet Kayshawn. It's he like not Mike's. A- Mike's background is, like, full of the Easter eggs. He's, like, literally like a cell like of your own animated series. Ooh. I, and
0: I, I think i see seen the Eagle Moss ship on your desk. I've Dude, got some so. Eagle Moss
2: stuff. In fact, yeah. I've got two Eagle Moss ships that have been behind me in interviews all season that appeared on screen. Uh, we've got the, uh, the, the Defiant and the— nice. uh, No, wait, wait. Not the Defiant. The Reliant. Sorry. Yeah. Um, nice. And the, uh, God, why have two great ships called one letter apart? Well, um, <laughs> you saw as my blood went cold when I was like, wait. Yeah, right. uh, we'll, we'll cut the, it out. Uh, we'll,
0: we'll try not to embarrass you.
2: Yeah. The, um, when we were working on the Obenaclass ship, the Archimedes in the finale, I clearly had to get an Excelsior, right? So I couldn't possibly work on that episode without having an XL Excelsior.
0: Right. <laughs> right. And is that an original Spock helmet behind you? Is that Not a... only is that
2: not an original, the folks at Titmouse made that for me so it fits an adult. So that's a one-of-a-kind wow. working. It has all the stickers. I've been too precious to put the stickers on it, but it came with Spock stickers, uh-huh. and it came with Billup stickers and Mike stickers. So <laughs> nice. I've been begging Viacom to bring back the Spock helmet and and sell it at Comic-Con, but... Uh, yeah. uh, They've they've pointed out to me that there might not be as big of a market <laughs> as I would imagine for it.
0: Well, I, well, speaking of that market, though, I I, I want to kind of skip to something that I had in my notes here to ask you about, which is we're two seasons into Lower Decks, and with it some time in between there, clearly, you know, between those seasons for things to kind of develop and nurture along. What do you make of the fan reaction and, and sort of acceptance of the show? As I, I don't want to preface it too much here, but my impression is from the day of the announcement of there's going to be a Star Trek animated comedy and the internet goes nuts because it can't help but go nuts and, and every vitriolic and reactionary statement comes out, but then people actually get to sit and accept the show and watch it and absorb it. What are you, you know? What, what is your feeling from your seat, the thirty thousand foot view of Lower Decks and Lower Decks fandom?
2: Um, it, it's been a roller coaster. You know, first season, we 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 put out a, a trailer and some still images, and it was a lot of me saying, "Please, just trust me, please, please, please." You know, mm-hmm. and that's hard, right? Because you know, we all love Star Trek so much that we don't want to be betrayed for that thing that's important to us. And I knew what my plans were for characters and the style of the show, that it wasn't going to be a betrayal. And I just felt, you know, it was hard to be a fan of something and know that you were making something that was really personal and really important, you know, that that to me, this is like my dream show, right? Like this is a show that not only did I never think I'd get to make, because it felt like Star Trek had kind of turned into movies or it had left kind of the the serialized week-to-week sort of way it was for 700-something episodes, and it had turned into its evolution of this kind of new cinematic storytelling. But, you know, back when I was writing TNG Season 8, I was, like, becoming a writer, and I just wanted to write Star Trek so bad, and I was mourning that not only was there no chance that I could write on Star Trek... But then, as a comedy writer, as an animation writer, the door was never going to be open to me to get to write on a Star Trek because you get kind of siloed into these different groups, you know? And so getting to actually do it, you know, I sat the artists down, I sat the writers down, and I've said this before, where I've been like, my this show is all about balance. It has to be a funny, charming, fast, modern, animated comedy for adults. But it's not worth making unless it is Star Trek at the same time. Because I... Mm there's there's so many other shows I could be working on that are just sci-fi adjacent comedies. This is the only chance I'm ever really going to have to actually get to make the thing that that I fell in love with when I was a kid and, and that I still love as an adult, right? And so seeing the audience first season, there were a couple people, you know, you guys, Jesse Gender on YouTube, like there, were, there was a good number of like people who were like, oh, we get this. Like, uh-huh. you know... But there was a lot of people that just, they were like, I I, I don't want to give this a chance, right? Like a lot yeah. of, and then also, there's a lot of folks online who were kind of like cherry picking different little micro moments or screen grabs and being like, this is what the show is entirely. And yeah. Yeah. which isn't, you know, which, which I, I'm not sure what they're getting from that. But like, they were almost reveling in what the show, the worst possible thing the show could be. Um, sure. So, you know... By the end of first season, though, man, I love those last three episodes, first season. And it felt like, wow, people get it. Like people love the people who are watching the show love it. And then season two drops and week to week, we're seeing more and more people treating we're getting something that no audience, no other show gets this where every single episode is treated like an event and it's treated like. Every episode goes under the microscope. Literally, I've never worked on a show where frame by frame, the fans go through it. And we're aware of it. Like, I, yeah. we do so much post, and we're so careful on this show. Because, like, you know, I used to work on South Park, and we'd air an episode. And, you know, South Park notoriously does it really fast. Sure. And then the morning after it aired, we'd go in and fix all the <laughs> that was wrong. <laughs> right. And, you know, sometimes Cartman's hand would be floating off his body or whatever it was. But then the version you would see on a DVD or on syndication would be, you know, it would be the fixed version of it right. on, on lower decks. Like where we don't have a huge budget. We don't have a huge team. We just have a really passionate, talented team. So it's crazy how good everything has to be week to week. Cause everything is treated like this is where the show is going to let us down. This is where we're going to be betrayed. And the show, mm. we didn't have the luxury We have 10 episodes. They're 20-something minutes long each. We didn't have the luxury of a filler episode. We didn't even have the luxury of, like, taking a swing at a joke that some people might not like without it erupting into these giant kind of, like, week-long, you know, thousands of Twitter comments conversations. On other shows, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want, and, and people look at the show in total. And on Lower Decks, just because of the Star Trek nature of it, like... It's this it's this wild ride of seeing people hyper react second by second sometimes while they're watching the episodes. Yeah. And then again in the in the the last three episodes, that's where I really like to break the form, get more cinematic, and really land some of the stories and and tell you what next season's gonna be a little bit about. And it feels like that's where I finally felt like, oh, people get the show now. Like when we aired Wage Douche, like that's that episode was like by far my most putting on my nineties hat, you know, making my, my dream episode. And, and that's, that's the episode that I would like, I would kill to make a live action movie. That's like that. You know what I mean? Like exploring other ships, like, you know, do and do a naval combat space space, you know, movie in the style of, of wrath of Khan, put people in those old outfits and shoot yeah. it like that. And, and really get to dig into those other cultures and those other ships and those, you know, those stories. But when people saw that episode and they reacted the way they did with, with delight and with joy with characters that were only on screen for five minutes, we had this new Vulcan character to Lynn that I loved, but I had spent a year like, you know, Catherine Lynn wrote it. I did my pass on it. We, we, we recorded, we recorded that role. We, we, we animated it. We fixed it. Like I had lived with that character for a year and in like the five or seven minutes she's on screen, people fell in love with her and with Mach, our Klingon Lower Decker, that's when I felt, that was when I finally sighed in relief and was like, okay, people get what we're doing. You know? And, like, now I can, I don't have to be so careful and defensive. I can keep, I can keep writing things that I know, and I'm sorry this is turning into, like, a monologue, but, like, the the second season, I we wrote second season before any of you guys saw first season. We had no yeah. idea how people yeah. were going to react. So, like, Three ships to Lynn, all that stuff that's being written before you guys saw the finale of season one, you know, before we knew if anybody was going to watch the show. So all I could do is cause we got a two season pickup way back in the day. And so all I could yeah. do is write the star Trek. I wanted to see the best way that I could do it. And while honoring star Trek, but giving people something new that they'd never seen before all at the same time, that's a really, that's hard to do. And I really felt like the audience got there. Like, I think the, there's a, there's a large audience for this show now that get what we're doing. And it's like, Oh, finally, like let's, cause we've already written season three. We're making season three, but it makes me excited that I'm like, hell yeah. Okay. Cause it's more and bigger and better in season three. And it's just a relief to know that if you liked what was happening at the end of season two, you're going to love season three. Sure.
0: Well, honestly, that that sort of brings me to uh, another kind of, uh, uh, you know, bird's eye view question about Lower Decks, and that is about the production, you know, animation is already not a very uh, forgiving format in the respect that you do have to plan everything far in advance. And there, there aren't just sort of like happy accidents because you're shooting one day and an actor improvises a line and then that becomes something else in a live action show. Animation, you've got to kind of stick to format uh, and stick to the production reality of what you're doing. So, you know, you just mentioned that you had already written season two before anybody saw season one. So these decisions like, say, killing shacks you know, you already knew that he was going to come back in season two. I I mean, was this the kind of thing where it had already been decided early on that you weren't even going to address how he came back? This is just one of the mysteries of how Star Trek works.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the hard thing about Lower Decks and the thing that lets it be new is that nobody's ever done Star Trek long form from the point of view of these lower deckers, right? You have a couple episodes like that across the series, but, or across the franchise. But for me, it's, you know, even when I was writing TNG season eight, one of my goals was, I don't want to redo an episode they've already done in Star Trek. So I would sit around and rack my brain about like, what can I say Picard did this week? And it's like, well, you can't do it if it happened on TNG. You can't do it if it happened on any other Star Trek series. And then I'd run into like, well, you can't do it if they did it on Stargate, or if they did it on, in a book. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you don't want to give people stuff they've already seen before because you want to challenge yourself to be creative. And, and reading books about writing Enterprise, about writing Voyager, even writing some aspects of Deep Space Nine, like, TNG ran into it with TOS. Like, you're constantly trying to not just play the hits, not just to redo what people have seen before. And on Lower Decks, it's like, awesome that means that we can do those stories we can do a story that happened on any other star trek and all we have to do is tell it from a different perspective and suddenly the opening is the same and the rest of the episode is different and mm-hmm. and it really is a relief like i don't know how i don't know how they wrote so many great voyager episodes because i'm a fan of all star trek and i i love the challenge of how much harder it got to write star trek as the episodes built up as the stories have been told in this world, mm-hmm. you know, that we can tell a story where, yes, I knew that I wanted Shax to die at the end of the season. Cause I wanted that emotional moment. Right. Mm-hmm. I want you to feel for the bridge crew, but I also knew I wanted to bring them back and not explain it to the lower deckers because that's a story nobody had done, but it definitely has happened. Like <laughs> what were the enterprise, you know, lower deckers thinking of when spot came back, did they all get like a, <laughs> did they all get an update like that that, what went down or did they just kind of hand wave it? And, you know, I think that like having worked jobs where it's mystifying why some of the decisions or why people are getting fired or rehired at the top of it, you know, Mm -hmm. that I'm not privy to sometimes um, that just felt like a great story that hadn't been told in Star Trek that would make you wonder about all the other seasons. So, yeah, I knew that I wanted to do that with Shaxx. And I think almost my mistake was, We did too good of a job with Shaq sacrificing himself because then I saw people being like, wait, we did two good. We did two jobs too well. Kayshawn is too funny and likable. And then (laughs) Shaq's death was too earned. And in a drama, both of those things are great. But in a story where we're bringing in Kayshawn in order to mislead that Shaq's isn't coming back. So it's an equally big surprise when he does. You know, nice. I never want the audience to be betrayed, but I'm always thinking about, I'm never thinking about their first watch through. I'm really thinking about their fifth, you know, mm. because I watch i watch Star Trek episodes so many times just running in the background or like if I'm traveling or whatever, it's just comfort food for me. And I like the idea of somebody going back and watching all of Lower Decks again. It's not that you're surprised that Shaq, like sure, Shaq's comes back, that's a surprise, Right. But what's really valuable to me is how are we telling him coming back? Does it, does it, is it, is it happening for a reason for a lower deck story, you know, that only our show could do. And so, yeah, like I, I saw some people bristling at us, not bringing, uh, bringing Shax back. But then by the end of the season, you just love Shax so much and Fred Tatasciore is just so fun and great yeah. to work with that like the show lower decks isn't lower decks without that bridge crew. And I had to bring him back.
0: Yeah. Nice.
1: And you know, Mike. so I think, uh, inarguably, I think one of the probably most Easter egg laden episodes and probably one of the ones that had the most amount of vitriol by one screenshot shared across all of Twitter for like the span of a week was I excretious. Yeah. And because I excretious, it touched on so many of the, of the episodes that we love, you know, you had specter of the gun, you know, you had the crystalline entity, mm. all of these episodes mm. And then you have this one scene where people take this one particular screenshot and they use it as the banner to say, this isn't what I think Star Trek is. How do you reconcile making that choice when you know that the different holographic pod sequences are so in touch with people's feelings and their emotions and their nostalgia? And then they just say, "Okay, this is what this episode means. So how do you feel about that in social media when that happens?
2: Yeah, that took me by surprise, and mostly, the way I felt about it was, guys, please, like, there's, you're not even seeing anything. The only thing you see in that scene is butts. You know, like, yeah. we've seen we've <laughs> seen cartoon butts on TV. Te- like, you can do cartoon butts on, on prime time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um,
0: and, and look, that that look on Boimler's face is gold.
2: It's funny. <laughs> That's a really funny moment. And you know, yeah. I'll take full responsibility for that moment. The when we were looking at post on that scene, that moment of Mariner freaking out, the original pose for Boimler there was just him kind of like almost draped and just giving like a come hither kind of like uh-huh. finger wave. And I was like, I don't see Mariner, the character reacting big to that. Like that just right. that just isn't her, that isn't her, you know? Mm-hmm. Like she's seen more of Boimler than that first season. So I was like, guys, we have to push this shot the audience has to go, ah, because then you'll understand why Mariner's going, ah, and and then you're with her, and then it's funny. Um, I think, you know, I when I was when we were working on that episode, it it was the premise of that episode was let's do a sketch comedy episode like we did first season with the trial episode a little bit, so we can get a lot of funny stuff in there. But also, let's do all of the let's do all of my favorite sort of star trek breaking of of normalcy episodes in one episode so that we don't do a whole mirror universe episode so we don't do a whole naked now naked time episode so that we can go to the old west but not spend a whole episode there i wasn't thinking of it as you know a memory lane kind of walk through for for other fans i was thinking of it as what are things that I feel like are in the DNA of Star Trek that have to be on screen in a Star Trek show that I don't want to spend an entire episode on because I don't think there's a lower decks thing to say about it that you haven't already seen on screen, especially with like the naked time stuff. Cause it's happened so many times in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that surprised me. That caught me off guard. I, I, I tend to think like people who are telling you what to like about Star Trek, like, like, I, I don't know that that's ever felt good to anybody. Like, I don't think that Star Trek has ever been a walled garden or a, you know, like obviously it was on primetime and it used to get like 13 million viewers an episode. And there were standards and practices and stuff that you couldn't, you couldn't push, but like there's nothing on, on lower decks that even begins to kind of scrape the bottom of the risque kind of stuff you can do on streaming and animation now. And like we bleep our we bleep our swear words and and we we cover any nudity up with a black box. And by the way, the the nudity isn't even gratuitous. It's like there for pushing story forward. You know, yeah. like we're not there to like titillate with that Boimler moment. We're there. The people that were freaking out on the internet about that were mariner in that scene. It was an effective moment, and it makes me laugh out loud when I see it. Um, it's so funny. Uh, uh, Jack Quaid saw some of that stuff online and he was like, this moment's really funny. Why is everybody freaking out? And I was like, I don't know. Don't worry about it. And he was like, I'm going to take a photo in that pose and post it online. And I was like, <laughs> you really shouldn't do that. And he was like, it'll be funny. And I'm like, I know it's funny and you know, it's funny, but do you really want that to be the photo of you? That's best known online. And he was like, I'm really glad we had this conversation. I'm <laughs> yeah, not going <laughs> to the internet never forgets. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. Good. Yep. Good. One of the through lines that I've really loved throughout the course of this season is seeing that there's always somebody higher up in in the chain of command. Like there's always going to be a lower decks, whether you're the captain of a ship or the admiral of Starfleet, everyone has somebody to answer to. Is that something, and and you were saying earlier that you had both seasons in the can, is that something that you really wanted to to create as a storyline saying that no matter who you are in this universe, there will always be a lower decks either above or below you in some way, shape, or form. It's interesting. It's it's it, in my head.
2: It wasn't really that. It was that you've seen in Star Trek before, but also you see this in real life, where like you always define if you're lower decks or not. You know, like you could be you could be the person you know fixing the holodeck, or you could be the person captaining the ship. But it's how you define where you are in your own career, whether you're happy or not. So seeing Freeman across this season be like, oh, I want to I want bigger and better. Like she experienced that the fame of being the captain that kind of came out strong after the Pac-Led battle at the end of season one. And suddenly, you know, you're seeing this captain who's like, Do I really want to be on a California class ship? You know? And then at the end of the season, with the finale, you see that that everybody coming together to kind of you know, Starfleet versus nature. Like, let's let's strip the ship and let's get through this kind of, this 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 debris field. And she's like, you know what? I do like. She does define working on a California class ship as being the important thing now. Like, mm-hmm. I really think that, you know, I tell people who are even starting in in the industry, um, in the entertainment industry, I'm like, listen, it doesn't matter what job you're doing if you are telling other people that you want something more that like, you're not happy where you are there, you know, it's not quite, they're not going to remember you as quite of a fun person or as a reliable person to work with. As if you were just, if if you embrace whatever you're doing at the moment, right? Like if you're a production assistant, nobody's going to remember that you're the best at bringing coffee. They're going to remember that you were a fun person to work with, that you were there on time. You're happy. You're a great part of the team. And then, when you get elevated from that, like, that's why they're elevating you, not because you were the fastest latte getter or whatever, which I had done a lot of jobs like that. And you kind of find your people, right? And, you know, it's important to me to be like, for all these people that are, that are maybe, you know, some jobs suck, right? Like we've all worked crappity jobs, but Mm -hmm. some jobs you can, you, you work so many of those that eventually it's like, you keep thinking that there's another thing to get, that there's another place to get to. And you get to a certain point in your career or your life where you're like, wait a minute, maybe I've got it good right now. Like maybe I should appreciate when something is good, you can appreciate it. Right. And so that's not what our lower deckers are feeling in lower decks, but I did want to, you know, there are different levels of lower deckishness and upstairs downstairsness in in the show, you know, like the Cerritos is a Lower Decks ship compared to other ships in the fleet. And you you want to see that, like, it is kind of how you define it in some ways. Like, sometimes you want to get out of it, but sometimes it's like, maybe this isn't Lower Decks. Maybe everybody's wrong. Maybe this is a cool place to work. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I want to ask you uh, some specifics about season two here um, because, you know, we we just wrapped it up. And again, presumably people have not gotten this far in our chat today uh, who have not already watched it. So. Yeah, somebody
2: just went, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to
0: stop, <laughs> go back. Red alarm. Red, <laughs> Red alarm. <Right. laughs> so let us talk about those pack leads. Uh, is this a situation where... You know, I know that you're a huge TNG fan, and of course, you wrote uh, the book but TNG season eight. Uh, if anybody has not uh, checked that out, please do so. But it, it, is this a situation where, in your mind, you know, you, you sit down putting pencil to paper the very first day to develop what will be lower decks? Do you just say to yourself, you know, we only got one moment with the Pakleds. What could we possibly do with the dumbest enemy in all of Star Trek? And you just go from there. Or, you know, was this something that got kicked around more than that? I, I'm curious how you landed there.
2: You know, what it was was, no, Pakleds came in late. I mean, I've always been... Pakleds have had a, a place in my head as a fan of weirdness because the first time I saw the Pakled episode when I was a kid... I never saw it again in syndication. Like I just kept missing Samaritan snare. Mm-hmm. And when I was an adult, they finally released the DVDs and I saw it on DVD. I think this was like, I think I watched it in 2004 maybe. And I was like, it. I thought that I had imagined it. Like I couldn't believe what a bad idea for an episode that was, but also like, cause that's also the episode where like Wesley and Picard are like basically in a bottle episode the whole time. And like, you know, it's, like it just i get why they wanted to do it but like the paclads are so problematic and just like you kind of can't believe that those aliens exist in the same shared you know universes as romulans and klingons and other other better fleshed out alien characters antagonists um so like to me there were things that like like we're all fans of star trek but I think we're personal fans of stuff another one is exocomp like that's mm-hmm. I, I've, I've always loved you know is it called quality of life i can't remember if that's the title of that episode but that's right yeah either which way like exocomps i was like how am i going to get an exocomp into this season you know and and Packled's like what ended up happening was every episode of season one i was like okay how is this a star trek episode what are we highlighting right like the trial episode that turns out to not be a trial. That's mm-hmm. like, oh, I love trial episodes in Star Trek and and you know, we wanted to do new stuff but also, but also reference old stuff. And in the finale the one thing we hadn't done season one is how do we say something about problems that are happening in the world through the lens of science fiction? And I knew that I wanted to do something. I had just listened to a podcast from The Daily about the rise of fascism in Europe and the re-rise of it and it was like it was really bugging me and it was like it was like how is this all happening again like we all know history repeats but like why are we not vigilant against this stuff and it's still a lot of that still feels like it's happening today like how do we have the internet but all this disinformation like how does how does what used to be a joke like with with you know um 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 with people just, like, making it up all the time and, like, mm-hmm. and, like manipulating people, like, how is that still a problem, you know? How is conspiracies... How did they go from a joke that nobody cared about that only your weird aunt talked about at Thanksgiving to, like, <laughs> being something you have to hear addressed in, like, a political debate? And my thinking of it was, okay, the pack lids are bad guys nobody wants, and they're not going to be touched by Discovery, Picard, Strange New Worlds, you know? Or and funny. then how do we take them... They used to be a joke... Let's make them really strong. Let's make them. You know, the theme of the finale of season one is without if things that are that are silly, if you're not vigilant about it, can become dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why the packlets fit perfectly into that for me because they should be a joke. They should be something nobody pays attention to. They should be a one-off that we hear about, I think, in dialogue a couple times in Deep Space Nine, just as texture. But mm-hmm. like the characters being surprised by it on screen matched the audience and and myself being surprised that it works so well that's why there's that reveal where they're like packlets and and also that packlets you take you take what they could do which is trick people into getting their technology and it's like okay something the packlets are good at is making you underestimate them and acclimating other cultures technology into their own which could be really dangerous so you know i the packlets are really like they're base. They're fun. They, they, everything they do makes you underestimate them uh, I- intentionally. Like that's their whole thing. And so, you know, it really came about finale of season one that that was going to be our our big bad for a couple of years.
1: Nice. Uh- just to jump in here, John, for a second, yeah, uh, Mike. I found it interesting that you're talking about the article about fascism. Is that where the line from Shax comes from? Fighting no, fascism? that comes
2: from him <laughs> fighting Cardassians.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. I was wondering <laughs> if you were channeling in that somewhere. No,
2: no. I mean, listen, I don't like fascism either. But Shax personally spent a lot of his lives, a lot of his lives, a lot of his life. I guess it is lives. He came back from the dead, but mm-hmm. Shax, Shax is intense. He spent a lot of time in the resistance. Like he is, he's seen some. Like he fucking hates alien fascists.
1: Yeah. No, yeah. It was just uh, one of those touch points where I was like, "Oh, okay." Because I see Shacks in the background. I'm just wondering if uh, he is like your uh, spirit animal. Oh or, no! In a way. That's
2: uh, the, the Shacks in the background here. For folks who can't see it, I have a big cardboard standee of Shacks. Uh, one of my uh, one of my writers, Emmy Willis, got that for me for Christmas because it was the biggest one they sold. And my wife was like, cool, that can live in your office. (laughs) (laughs) I do love it, though. I love being on Zooms that aren't Star Trek related, where eventually somebody has to go, sorry, what is that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, So let's talk about this, because You you really hit on something about uh, the ideas leading you to a story. And I'm just curious, you know, in developing whether an episode or a season of a show like Lure Decks, particularly because it's Star Trek and and our stock and trade on Mission Log is morals, meanings, messages. You know, what does come first? Is it the character beats, the big ideas, or is it the jokes, or does it all just kind of meld together at once? Do they feed each other?
2: Um, it's mostly the character beats right off the top. Mm-hmm. Where do we want to start the season? Where do we want to end? Where do we want to be in the middle? Where do we want to surprise people? And then once we have that, that's like the little bit of like, you know when uh when people go into like cave diving and they leave that line behind them that they can kind of find their way through like that's right. that's the little guiding line in the darkness of the season right and then after that episodically we're in the wild west like we'll we'll know what we where we want to go with the characters but each episode we'll stop and go okay what are we doing you know and we'll start we're, we're looking for a, something that feels star trek that has a that has an emotional story happening that has a a big bridge crew episode happening, but that also has emotional episodes happening at the same time for the lower decker officers. And once we start to talk about that, then the comedic angle is starting to come in. Where like, how does this feel like the structure of a comedy, even if it also feels like the structure of a Star Trek? And then, if that stuff is all working, then we can move forward and story break and and get all the little beats and and figure out the fun stuff and and the stakes. But it really does start with. Where are these characters? What are we telling with them? What are their paths?
0: I, I would ask you something about your your staff, because, you know, you, you're putting together people as the creator of this show, and you're the uh, clearly the big Star Trek fan. Uh, but you wanted to bring together people who probably had, you know, some Star Trek or science fiction knowledge, some comedy chops, etc., I see all the time people on the internet arguing about well, so and so can't do Star Trek. They're not a fan. So and so can't do Star Trek because, you know, their their fan knowledge doesn't align quite with theirs. Um, I mean, you're the guy in charge, and you are the biggest fan in the room. But are you finding that maybe people that work with you who don't come at this with a huge background in Star Trek knowledge? Like, are, are they just sort of acclimating themselves or is it really about just the heart of character is what leads this, the
2: Star Trek is what comes after that? It's it's kind of a mix. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think the people who are like, only huge Star Trek fans can write Star Trek are wrong because TOS was written by people who had never written Star Trek before mm-hmm. and they did a pretty great job. Um, yeah. I, I think that like any room... Any any writers' room, any show writers' room, uh, it all it all goes to the showrunner, right? So like when I was on Rick and Morty, everything that you're story breaking, everything you're trying to figure out, it's will will Dan and Justin respond to this, you know? And then it goes from there. And so there are there are people who are who know more about Star Trek than me on on Lower Decks. You know what I mean? Um, there are people who their first time watching a Star Trek episode was our first day, season one. Uh, are just funny good writers like we have one writer who was like why am i here i don't know anything about star trek and i'm like (laughs) i'm like do you get along with your mom she's like not always and i'm like there you go like that's (laughs) gonna be really valuable in this show uh and it's it's one of those things where you know some of my staff that knows star trek better than me actually bristles sometimes at stuff i want to do because they're like that's not star trek and i'm like i know Mm -hmm. but we have to do new stuff sometimes too Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day this show has to be Star Trek, but also new. It has to be Star Trek, but also funny. And it has to basically like anything good or anything bad in this show, anything you like or anything that you bristle at, you can really blame me at the end of the day because there's nothing that doesn't go through me. Like the I get, I get 90 images a day that I have to go through and give notes on for the art approvals, for the character design, for the background, for the color. I do enormous passes on every script. I'm there for the story-breaking of every episode. I'm, I'm oftentimes directing a lot of the voice actors, although that's a huge expenditure of time, so sometimes I don't get to do all that, but I love doing it. And, you know, at the end of the day, Lower Decks feels cohesive because, like any good show, it's the expression of what m- I would want to do in a Star Trek show. Utilizing mm-hmm. all these voices and bringing them together so that it's better than what I would have thought of. Like most of the funniest lines come from my funny writers. You know, they're coming from like Chris Kula and Ben Rogers and, you know, like, but we're getting there to a place where it's kind of like, it has to be something that I think works, you know, and, and there were times when I was originally staffing the show where like I would have meetings with people who were immense Star Trek fans, but their opinion of what Star Trek could or couldn't be was so specific that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be able to use them on the show because they would be like everything after TOS was lesser you know what I mean or like this is the one best ship or whatever and my opinion of Star Trek is it's all awesome right you have to love Star Trek in its in its almost its entirety then then we can make new Star Trek and to love all of Star Trek it's an entirety and you almost have to like have a little bit more distance than a than a super super fan because a super super fan it's like this is, this is stone and people who, people who love, you know, talking about Star Trek and digging into old episodes and finding new things and that it's, it's not scripture, but it is a thing you love as much as those people who do think it's scripture. That's a good Lower Decks writer. Like that's somebody who can make new Star Trek that loves the old stuff, but we can bend and change stuff just enough that like, we're giving you something new with new characters.
1: You know, Mike, uh, in traditionally, uh, and I'm going to date myself and I'll probably date some of us since we'll talk about it, you know, uh, you know, with some uh, reference points. But we used to uh, we used to judge like the success of an episode based on uh, the return of investments on ad buys or uh, Nielsen ratings, working with Paramount Plus, working with something that's a, a paid subscription service. Do you have the opportunity to be able to data mine and go into episodes that you have seen on social media tick up, say like "Wesh Duj, which I think is one of the best Star Trek episodes I've ever seen, ever, because it broke format, because you were telling all of these different stories from these three ships' points of view. If you see that as a successful data point, is that something that's going to help steer your narrative for season three, or is that something that you're like, you know what, Like you said, risk is your business. I'm going to paraphrase Kirk, but you take a lot of risks in being the showrunner. I'm just going to go with my gut instinct, and this has got me so far, so good, I might as well go this way. So where does data and information help drive your choices for the show?
2: So we get zero information, and that's true for every show I've done on streaming. Streaming doesn't tell you how many people view it. They don't tell you how many subscriptions they got because of it. Uh, All they tell you is we want more episodes or not. So I have solar opposites wow. on Hulu. I've never gotten a number from them, you know. And we're writing season four of that right now. Uh, I, I'm constantly trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, of audience response online. But you know, I can't tell how many people are watching anything. Like I can't tell if we're a big hit on all access or I or sorry, excuse me. If we were a big hit on what was all access, or if we are a big hit for Paramount Plus. Um, I know that we drive a lot of fun conversation for star trek on twitter but i'm also only looking for people talking to me and there's there's sort of a bias of that you know i i can't assume that that's a lot of people that are talking about stuff so there's no data um and even if there were you know the the landscape of how many people is a success is constantly shifting um you know, they used to think that, that 30 rock and parks and recreation were huge bombs. And it turned out that they just didn't know that at the time those were giant rating successes. And as you know, I've been in the industry long enough that like one of my first internship job was, I remember when I was like, somebody was like, Hey, have you seen this thing called YouTube? You know what I mean? Like there's all, all I do is I I kind of, to to answer the second party. So the first answer is no, I don't know anything. (laughs) They don't tell me anything about anything. That's Uh, fascinating. Yeah. Which is both horrifying, but also also freeing, you know. Um, and then, the second thing is, even when I was writing on Rick and Morty, and we were having tons of interaction with the audience, when I would see what people thought was coming online, I'd go into the writers' room and be like, "Hey, this thing that we were going to do, people have already guessed. We got to change it. Like, I don't want I don't want people to know what's coming when we air it, you know." And so. I don't quite do that on Lower Decks. Uh, instead, when I see what people are responding to, basically, I'm like, I've got one one door in my head, which is that we like it door. I don't have the we don't like it door in my head. Like, if people don't like stuff, I don't care. Because it's if I liked it, that's more important to me than if three or five or even 100 people don't like it. Because it's kind of like cab reviews on Yelp. Like, nobody nobody goes for a cab ride and then Yelp and then like writes a Yelp review that they got there on time and that it was a fine cab ride. You know, they only Yelp review if the, there was a rat in the cab right. and it's like, right. you kind of can't, you can't go off of that amount of information to change creativity. Like what should be allowed to affect you creatively, you know? But sometimes I'm like, okay, I loved that. Like cetacean ops, right? I've been obsessed with Citation ops my whole life. Like, sequest is basically cetacean ops spinoff of star trek from the same guys and like nice. they didn't land it like i i desperately wanted them to because i wanted to have star trek stargate and <laughs> and you know dsb but the um but i've always loved the idea of cetacean ops in star trek which is why they're literally mentioning it season one and why we go there you know in the finale of season two if people had hated that, I'd be like, you, I love cetacean ops. You'll never take that from me. I think it's <laughs> great, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but since they love cetacean ops, I'm like, thank God, because I'm going to do a bunch of it, and now I will, I'll push it even more. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so, when people like stuff, when it's working for them, like, Wejdouj, like when we were writing, Wejdouj, I was like, oh, this is like one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. Like, I was just so happy, and, when people responded to it, I had no idea what they were going to feel like. When that episode was coming out, I remember I was talking to Chris Wesley, our composer, and I was like, you think people are going to like this episode tomorrow or not? And he was like, i I'm have honestly, I'm, I'm terrified they're not going to like it because we like it so much. And we can't predict what the audience, and then when the audience loved it, we were like hopping up and down just being like, hey, you know, we get to keep making the thing we like. Um, but yeah, I think that the, you know... When I watch the episodes again and I decide what I like and what I don't like, like first season, when I rewatched it again at the beginning of season two, before you guys saw it, I was like, God, we never paired up Mariner and Tendi, you know? And I was like, we got to start doing, we got to find these different pairs. We got to force ourselves to not do the easy path. Cause like, you know, we once you know how to write dialogue between two characters, it's just so fun to write that, you know, we got to mm-hmm. break it up a little bit. And then it was so funny at the end of season one where everybody was like, why aren't they paired up in different ways? And I was like, all right, well, I guess you guys are going to like season two. Um, but, you know, it's it's one of those things where the... I feel like if I was writing stuff as a response to what the internet was asking for, it stops being Lowered X and it starts being a bit more, you know, like McDonald's, where it's like somebody put it in an order and we have to make it fit to what everybody wants. Like, mm-hmm. if there's two moments in a season of Lower X that you don't like as much and you love the rest of the season, then we're doing an amazing job.
1: (laughs) The 80, 20 rule. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: We've only, we've only aired 10 episodes. We're like halfway through the first, no, we've aired, excuse me, 20 episodes. We're like, we're very early in a run of, of, of a Star Trek, you know, compared to every other Star Trek and the amount of episodes we have that, that are just fun and spark joy, like compared to everybody else. I'm like, cut me some slack. You don't like that a Mugato jerked off its horn. The animators were laughing at that. I thought that was funny, you know, like, and now everybody's all upset about that. And I'm like, guys, they're poisonous gorillas that can murder you with poison horns. This is the thing you don't like about them.
1: This is what you've taken away from this moment. In the original Mugato
2: episode, Kirk's big solution is to give everybody rifles. Like, I don't think the worst Mugato crime is that we had one that likes to watch, but I mean, I guess the internet I guess the internet is a little bit more buttoned up than it was when I started uh, reading the internet back in the day. Um, Maybe so. But anyway, that, that's, that's basically, they don't give us any data, and if they would, I wouldn't look at it. If you guys are excited by stuff that I love, that energizes me, if you guys aren't as big of a fans of stuff that we're doing, I kind of ignore it because I need the freedom in my mind to be creative and do the show that we need without feeling like I'm catering to people that, you know, that might not represent everybody in the audience.
0: So uh, you may have just answered it for me because uh, the answer seems to be that you, you are the audience for Lower Decks. But I want to phrase this in a slightly different way because um, nothing I wouldn't tell you in person anyway, and certainly here for our listeners. Um, One of my critiques, frustrations uh, whenever we get on the air and we talk about the show week after week um, is that I'm, I'm sometimes trying to figure out if I am the person who this show is geared to or not. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, like we're talking about uh, I Excretus. There, that is a show full of references, and some of them are very in-your-face references. Some, like literally naming an episode and then putting you in the episode. Some are a little more subtle, like Borg Encounter. Okay, there's a reference to you know a theme park show in the you know long extinct uh, uh, Star Trek: The Experience. and when I watch a show like when I watch an episode like that, I think, okay, well, for me, the Star Trek fan, who's been steeped in this for decades, I go, oh, okay, well, I see the name of the episode, The Naked Time, and I know what happens in The Naked Time, and now I'm going to go into a simulation of The Naked Time. That That's a lot of hitting the joke over the head for me. And then I think about somebody who is not a Star Trek fan... I I was just at a convention that was mainly geared toward like um, anime and superheroes. Not a lot of Star Trek fans there, but they knew about Lower Decks. And they may have been watching it, maybe not, or at least they were aware of it. And I think, well, if that person is watching Lower Decks, they're not necessarily going to make the association and get the reference that The Naked Time is the thing where this takes place with these people in this context— so that reference is kind of lost on them anyway.
2: I don't think that's true. No? No, I think so, you t- t- have a Star Trek bias. I see this a lot. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, we write this show for somebody who's never seen Star Trek. In the mm-hmm. Naked Time simulation, you walk in, the computer tells you it's the Naked Time. Mariner goes, oh no, is this one of those things when the virus got on the ship and made everybody all emotional and horny and fight all the time? She right. walks into a room where that's happening. She doesn't like it. She begs for it to be over. The show moves on. Yeah, There is literally no need to know that that happened specifically in Star Trek before unless you you already know about it. Now, the best versions of this on our show is somebody goes, wait, did that really happen on Star Trek before? Because Mariner referred to it as one of those things. Because, by the way, they've done it twice, and it's not the only time there's been a lot of nudity and sex stuff and people kind of not being who they are. You know, it's, it's not exactly a new idea, not even for Star Trek. Like, there's a lot of things where it's like, like, look, half of Stargate is people getting infected by a little worm up their back and then turning with flashing eyes and, and wearing next to nothing. Like, this is, this is a classic serialized 90s sci-fi trope. I'm sure X-Files did it too. Like, right. the, the 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 comedic extreme we take it to is not only diegetically appropriate for the show where the the drills are, are on purpose trying to force people to fail and are exaggerating the things that you saw on the show already, but it's also just a funny scene. And you, I see a lot of people online being like, wow, I wish this show would tone this stuff down because people don't understand the Star trek y of it. It's not going to be good for new fans, but that's only because you guys know it. You know, when I was writing Rick and Morty, when they meet a new alien, we would just call them the Garminars, we'd explain what they're about, and then you move on. That's what a modern audience sees this legacy Star Trek stuff as. It's not hard stuff to figure out. You know, you get it pretty quick out of context clues, out of character performances, and if we're not sure that they're going to get it, that's when I add a long scene at the beginning of the finale of season one where Ransom and Freeman are walking through halls talking about those old scientists, you know? And explaining Landru and explaining all of that. You know, whenever I think that a new audience member might not totally get it, we, we layer in a little bit of explanation that's steeped in a little bit of comedy so that a longtime Star Trek fan doesn't feel like they're just getting the memory alpha of it, you know? Sure. But a new person is, give, is getting something to hold on to. Um, So the answer is probably, like, the reason that you're feeling like that is that the show is really not necessarily geared towards everybody who knows everything about Star Trek. It's geared towards people who either know a little bit, nothing, or everything. And it's that Swiss Army knife kind of aspect of it that makes you look at the Swiss Army knife and go, am I really supposed to chop vegetables with this? And it's like, no, you're supposed to do everything with this. You know? (laughs) And weirdly you know i think that the reason that that feels shocking sometimes is that <clears throat> so much of the show is streaming it's so specific it's not broad it's not meant to air you know on cbs at 7:30 p.m. on a wednesday night or whatever it does feel really streaming but there is a broadness to it where those scenes they do not have to cater I- identically to what came before and that a new person coming into it, they just know it as the scene in this episode. And sometimes they go, wow, this makes me want to go watch old Star Trek. Sometimes they're like, it's funny. Sometimes they're like, I don't want to see a guy's blocked out taint. But it's not always the exact same response, you know?
0: I, that says it all. Can't thank you enough. Uh, this has been great. I look forward to doing it again sometime. It's always nice talking to you guys. Good all to right. see you. Thank you. Take That's it fine. easy, man. We won't hold you up any longer. I know you gotta get to uh, your next thing. So gotta cheers. get to the, it's
2: never ending here in the McMahon household. Thank you so much, you guys.
0: <laughs> Take care, man. All, All right, I right. guess.